Boy, it is nice to see you all here this morning, especially those of you who are either returning IU students or Ivy Tech students or brand new to our congregation. We are thrilled to death that you're here, and I hope that while you're away from home, we can be your spiritual home away from home. So you let us know anything we can do to make your stay here in Bloomington more pleasant, more enjoyable, how you can serve, how you can work. You just let us know. And for those of you who are worshiping with us online this morning, we're grateful that you've tuned in as well. And uh, we're starting a new series, simply called Curious, based on the questions that you all submitted in these last uh, few weeks. This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 10. Isn't it sad when we stop being curious? I believe, I honestly believe that curiosity is a gift from the Father. You see, God is a curiously creative God, and if we have indeed been created in his image, then it shouldn't surprise us. It should stand to reason that we would be curiously creative as well. Now, you may be thinking, well, I don't think I'm a very curious person. <laughs> well, in the first place, that may not be true. You may be selling yourself short. But if it is true, what happened to you? <laughs> when did you lose that aspect of the image of God in your life. Having smaller grandchildren, I have been reacquainted with the question, why? 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 So with apologies to my adult daughters for when they were young, I now have a whole lot more patience for the why question because I've come to realize that it is a gift from God to be curious. And you say, well, is curiosity really all that important? Oh, absolutely. Here's the problem. When we stop being curious, the impact can be a negative one. The uncurious person is often content with mediocrity. The drive to learn or grow or improve just isn't there anymore. And consequently, uncurious minds stop dreaming. The imagination shrivels up like a prune, and that's tragic. You see, it's easy to be mediocre. Anybody can be mediocre. But who wants to walk in the footsteps of mediocrity? Uncurious people miss opportunities because they aren't watching for them anymore. Uncurious people are not good at fostering friendships because they don't care to learn anymore about you or your life. Uncurious people grow lethargic in their faith. They are satisfied with the spiritual growth of the past. They see no need to expand their knowledge beyond where they've been for the last several years years. Their Bibles are dusty. Their faith walk is pungent with the odor of spiritual mothballs. The inner closet of their hearts smells musty. I'm telling you, it's a dangerous thing to lose your curiosity and stop asking questions. And you say, okay, okay, I'm just going to start asking questions all the time. Well, now hold the phone, all right? Not every question is a curious question. Some questions are just nosy. In our, in our first ministry back here in the state of Indiana, we lived in a parsonage that was literally a few feet from the next door neighbor, an older couple, whom we got these questions regularly. Did you have company last night? We saw a baby through the window. <laughs> you may call that curious if you want to, but I've got another word for it. <laughs> See, not every question is 
curious. Some questions are born not out of curiosity in an effort to learn, but born out of sarcasm in an effort to demean. They're designed to hurt instead of help, and there's nothing curious about that. There's nothing godly about that either. Again, not every question is creative. Some are just silly. <laughs> you got your face all lathered up, and somebody says, you going to shave? <laughs> what else would I be you know, wearing shaving cream for? You get all dressed up, and you say, I'm going to the funeral of Ed Smith. And inevitably, somebody will say, did Ed die? (laughs) No, Ed just thought he'd have his funeral because he wanted to hear what people had to say about it. He was going to do it early, you know. Some questions are just silly. And trust me, I've asked plenty of those silly questions in my life, and I bet you have too. For instance, some questions, have you ever noticed, they just come out wrong. It's not the way you intended for them to come out. They just do. I knew at the minute it came out of my mouth, but it was too late. It happened in psychology class in college, and the lesson that day was on twins. I do not remember, folks. I have no clue as to what I was trying to ask or what I was trying to convey. But the question came out like this. Are identical twins of the same sex? (laughs) It's been a long time. I have not forgot that moment. I got the award for the craziest question asked that year. I like good, curious questions, always have. They challenge the mind, they spark good conversations, they enhance learning. Through the years, folks here have offered some really great questions. And as a matter of fact, in getting ready for this series, many of your questions have been outstanding. And the problem is, this is a short series. So we won't get to all the questions that you've asked, but we're going to do our best to answer them online. So you can tune in to our website and maybe find the answers to the question you ask if it doesn't end up in one of the sermons coming up here shortly. And I recognize that some of the questions you submitted are the same ones I've heard for years and have enjoyed answering. But curiously enough, (laughs) the two most frequently asked questions I get these days are not spiritual. And I get them about once a week anymore. The first one goes something like this. What do you use on your hair? And when I answer suave shampoo, the second question follows quickly on the heels. Aren't you 60-something? So, for the record, suave shampoo is all I use on my hair. I have no problem with people who color their hair, but that's not me. And yes, I'm 62. And thankfully, I get my darker hair from my mom's side of the family. If I took after my dad's side, there would be no hair left to discuss. So there you have it, straight from the horse's mouth, all right? But the best thing about curiosity, the best thing about curiosity is this. Curiosity seeks the truth. Without curiosity, you might just find yourself satisfied with believable lies. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? Sermon on the Mount, he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, folks, if that's not an invitation to be curious, I don't know what is. And the end result of that kind of spiritual curiosity? Well, John records this in chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Curiosity seeks truth, and that kind of truth sets us free. So do we have any examples in the Bible of curiosity? 
Oh, yeah, we've got a lot of them. Uh, it, it, the Bible actually opens with a story of curiosity. It was uh, Eve when she was curiously drawn to that beautiful tree with its luscious fruit, that forbidden fruit, and she ate of it, and we have been in a spiritual jam ever since she took that first bite. She was curious. Didn't turn out so well. On the other side of the coin, I think Jesus was a curious young man, and I think he was a curious man throughout his life. But we, we see this one incident when Jesus is at the temple in Jerusalem. He missed the trip home back to Nazareth. Do you remember? He's 12 years old. And two days later, when his folks get back all in a panic because they've lost Jesus, where do they find him? They find him in the temple asking and answering questions with the religious leaders. Jesus was curious. There are a lot of passages, but there is at least one situation where curiosity had a terrifically positive outcome and impact. So once again, the good Dr. Luke records this beautiful story of transformation in the 19th chapter. The story takes place in the city of Jericho as Jesus was passing through on his way to Jerusalem. Now don't overlook that. This is the last time that Jesus would ever be in Jericho. He would never be back again because by the time he got to Jerusalem, the plot came to fruition that ended in his crucifixion. After this moment, Luke 19, Jesus would die just a few days later. We need to learn this lesson well. When opportunities come along, do not procrastinate. They may be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that slips through your fingers, never to be had again. If this story hadn't taken place at that moment, it would never have had the opportunity to take place again. Now, the crowds in Jericho packed the narrow streets of that community as Jesus squeezed his way through the dusty downtown area. The people had gathered to see, hear, or touch him as he passed through. Among the throngs of people stood a man who wanted to see Jesus just as much as anybody else wanted to see him. The problem was he just didn't stand very tall. And nobody in Jericho was about to let the little guy wriggle through to the front of the line where he could see Jesus. And so Zacchaeus resorted to plan B. Determined not to miss Jesus, he spotted a sycamore tree and scampered up. Now, this is not the sycamore tree that's famous to Indiana. This is a mulberry fig tree. Low branches, big, beautiful branches that make for nice shade. Easy climbing and, well, an okay fruit. This is, this is sort of, um, well, if, you, if you need to have a snack, you could have a mulberry fig. But they, they weren't what everybody wanted. But that's the kind of tree. So up he went and out on a limb to wait for the only person he really cared to see that day, and that was Jesus. And that's, that's when the story really starts to get interesting. Uh, people, human nature hasn't changed in 2,000 years. By the time of this story, Jesus has been in his earthly ministry nearly three years now. And his fame had spread far and wide. He had what we would call celebrity status. The, the, no wonder the crowds were in the streets and thronging through the byways. They wanted to see Jesus. That's how we are with a celebrity. You know, somebody famous comes to town and you say, hey, I got to shake hands with him. Or she gave me a smile. Why are we that way? It, 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 we, we just long to have some kind of contact with somebody famous. And so that's the mood that's pervasive on the streets of Jerusalem that day. 
or on Jericho that day as Jesus comes through town. But there is another mood here, a mood that is far subtler, and that is the mood of the people towards Zacchaeus. They loathed him. In the mind of the crowd, he had no business even being here present for such an important occasion to taint what was about to happen. Now, let's face it. He was the guy that people loved to hate. He was a fellow Jew who had sold out to the Romans as a tax collector. And not just any tax collector. He was the chief tax collector of the region. And Jericho was one of the wealthiest places at that time in the land of Judea. It was sort of the star in the crown of communities. You want to go to someplace nice, someplace special, you went to Jericho. And so here's Zacchaeus living like a fat cat off of the the money that he had swindled from fellow Jewish people who were forced to pay their taxes. You got the picture? No wonder the folks here from Jericho avoided Zacchaeus like the plague. Consequently, and I'm guessing here, this is speculation, Zacchaeus tried to remain a bit inconspicuous, hiding in the leaves of that fig tree. Because you see, when you're out on a limb, (laughs) and the people hate you, and rocks are pretty plentiful on the street, and you can't get out of that tree very quickly, you're taking a risk being out on that limb for sure. He was an easy target. Zacchaeus was waiting. The crowd was waiting. And when Jesus stopped there, he moves toward the tree. Now, I can't imagine what's going on in the people's mind, but it was probably something like this. wonder what he's looking for. Is he looking for some shade to take a quick rest? Maybe he's really hungry and he's going to have some of those mulberry figs on, on that tree. Or maybe, maybe he has spotted Zacchaeus up on that tree and somebody once and for all is going to call him out for what he is, a dirty, rotten, despicable scoundrel in our community. Jesus doesn't do anything like that. He looks up into the mulberry and says something like this. Zacchaeus, set you up in that tree. Come on down right now. I'm going to your house. I'm going to spend the afternoon at your place. The people are dumbfounded at this unexpected turn of events. What is wrong with Jesus? Surely he doesn't know who he's talking to because once he finds out who it is that he invited to come down that tree, he's going to turn on him like nothing else. But he didn't. Jesus knew full well who was up in that tree And what he was about to do. So Zacchaeus gleefully scrambles down out of the tree. Takes off with Jesus and his disciples in tow. The crowd is left stunned in disbelief. Oh, but folks, Jesus always sees what the crowd doesn't. When Jesus gazed up at Zacchaeus, he looked beyond the stature of the man. He looked beyond his alliance with the Roman government. He looked beyond his hatred of the crowd. He looked beyond the duplicitous role that Zacchaeus carried out. He looked beyond this low self-esteem that Zacchaeus obviously had. And he saw a man with big potential for God. A grand meal and celebration followed shortly thereafter. The unelite were the ones that were invited to share the afternoon with Jesus. Zacchaeus thinks he's died and gone to heaven. <laughs> On second, that's, that's exactly what happened. In the presence of Jesus, Zacchaeus died to his old way of life. And the hope and the glory of heaven filled his soul. Listen to how the story ends in verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, 
Here and now I give half of my half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, what can we learn from this great story of this curious little man? Well, let me just leave you with some things, some, what I think are, are great truths that jump out of this passage. Here's the first one. Ignore negative people. Ignore negative people. Look at verse 7 again. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Oh, that word mutter. Do you know what that word is in, in the original text? It is a word that describes a swarm of bumblebees. The, the angry sound that comes from a swarm of bumblebees. You, you get it, don't you? You can just hear this buzzing all over the street. Ah, Jesus is gone. And, and, and there's sort of this tone in it. Well, if he's eating with sinners, then I don't care that he didn't pick me. You got the spirit of the people? I have a curious question. Are there degrees of sinnerhood? Because you see, if Jesus hadn't gone to eat with Zacchaeus, anybody he would have gone home to eat with that day, he would have been eating with a sinner. You see, negative people draw conclusions that don't tell the whole story. Negative people pick and choose what they want to hear, see, and believe that fosters their own perspectives and agendas. Negative people enjoy sour grapes. Negative people like to make life miserable for others so they can feel good about themselves, which is a formula that never works. According to Dr. Eleanor Kinarthy, the average person has more than 200 negative thoughts that go through our brain every day. Two hundred negative thoughts. This room, we are all average people. I'm assuming we're dealing with the 200 negative thoughts every day. Some days they may be more than 200. Can you imagine that? 200 negative thoughts. If you dwell on them, you'll end up acting on them. And do you really want to be known as the mutterer, the negative person? On the flip side, don't let negativity found in others cause you to give up. Listen carefully. Jesus cared less about the opinion of the crowd because he cared more about the soul of Zacchaeus. That one moment of encouragement from Jesus changed Zacchaeus forever. Now, I'm here to tell you, a negative thought can just drain the energy right out of your day. But an encouraging word can lift you up and set you on a brand new course. Don't ever underestimate the power of a negative thought or a, a negative comment, but don't ever underestimate the power of an encouraging word at the right time. And here's the thing. It may come when and where you least expect it. Back in 2015, I was able to check off another item on my bucket list as I was privileged to attend the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., and it was a wonderful experience. Afterwards, I am on the subway platform waiting to pick up a train to take me back to the hotel when a young man, probably 19, 20 years old, something like that, stepped over and looked me up and down. Now, I was wearing a very plain black top coat that, I'm, that I know was older than he was. 
I had the collar turned up against the cold February wind. And then he spoke. And this is what he said. Mmm, I like your style. <laughs> now, now, you need to understand that nobody has ever accused me of having style. <laughs> let alone liking my style. I was startled, to say the least. I thanked him for his kind thought, and I thought it would end there. <laughs> but it didn't. Then he added this. He said, you know, you could get any woman you wanted with a style like that. I have no idea what kind of a rating system he was using at that moment in time. I once again thanked him and I said, I'm married. I've found the, the woman that I want to spend the rest of my life with. But I'll tell you something. When my train arrived, I stepped on that train with a swagger. <laughs> I kept my collar up the whole way back to the hotel. There's just something about an encouraging comment that lifts your spirits and helps set you on the right road to wherever you need to go. You see, the negativity can do that, but I'm telling you, ignore the negative people. You be the person who gives the encouraging word. It transforms Zacchaeus. It'll transform you and anybody else. Here's the second thing. Love the unlovable. Look in verses 5 and 6. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus... Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Just, just love oozes out of this passage. Now, let me, let me quickly add this. Undoubtedly, in that crowd in Jericho that day, there were a lot of people that loved Jesus. I, these were not all cynical people. These were not all that were just caught up in the celebrity of it all. But Jesus turned his attention to the only one in the crowd that no one else loved. I'll be honest. I relate to the feelings of the crowd more than I relate to Jesus here in this passage of Scripture. Think of the person for whom you have the least regard. The person that just drives you nuts. If that person came in and sat next to you in your pew this morning, what would you do? If that person extended his or her hand during our greeting time, would you refuse to shake it? Would you give them a piece of your mind? After the sermon was over, of course. <laughs> would you be sure when the service was over to explain to everybody else a warning about staying away from that person? I mean, every one of us in this room can think of somebody or maybe some bodies that we just can't hardly stand. Who do you know that is as unlovable as Zacchaeus? I have another curious question. Is it acceptable for me as a Christian to hate those who are hateful? If someone believes and acts upon the very opposite of what I believe and what I profess to be, is it okay for me to hate them? Philosophically, I have absolutely nothing in common with a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi. My dad's oldest brother and first cousin both lost their lives fighting against that very ideology in World War II. But if I, re but if I reduce myself to their egregious level, have I not responded to hatred with hatred of my own? And is that ever right? 
Jesus knew every despicable thing about Zacchaeus and loved him despite his sin. And that extension of kindness and grace changed Zacchaeus forever. You see, I believe the only thing that will change our culture and our world is the message and the grace of Jesus Christ. Extending kindness to the harsh, being gracious to the ungracious, loving the unlovable is one of the most difficult challenges that we ever face as Christians. As a matter of fact, I am not capable of doing it of my own accord. I cannot love those people without the help of Jesus Christ. Loving the unlovable is countercultural, but it is to be the unexpected response that has the greatest impact and changes the most lives. Jesus loved the unlovable Zacchaeus in the presence of an unloving community and made that abundantly clear. Jesus never condoned his sinful behavior. But in the presence of Christ, Zacchaeus made a commitment to change his sinful behavior. I am convinced that hate is never the answer anytime, anywhere. We struggle with extending grace to those who have so offended us because we feel like if we forgive, we are letting them off the hook. Nothing could be farther from the truth, folks. Our forgiveness is a reflection of Jesus. We forgive because he first forgave us. Forgiveness does not let the offender off the hook. It lets me off the hook. You see, carrying a grudge is hard, back-breaking work. Hatred is a millstone that will grind us down to nothing. Learning to love the unlovable is Christ-like. Because remember, all of us are unlovable at some moment and at some time. Here's the last thing. Point others to Christ. Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. We use that verse a lot. Throughout my ministry, I've heard that quoted a whole lot by a whole lot of people. We forget the story that it comes at the end of. It comes at this fabulous story of Zacchaeus. Once again, Jesus uses this unique moment to hit at the heart of the issue and declare the purpose in his coming. He came for the broken, not for those who have it all together. He came for the hurting, the miserable, the disenfranchised, the downtrodden. He came to seek and to save the lost, not for the moment, but for eternity. You see, Zacchaeus went up the tree a hated man. He came down the tree a hopeful man. And the only difference was Jesus. When Jesus gave him time, forgiveness, salvation, and a future to hold on to, he gave him hope. And not only to Zacchaeus, but the entire community of Jericho. You see, if God could love Zacchaeus, God can love anyone. If Zacchaeus could change... Uh, anyone can change. What was it that changed him from public enemy number one to Jericho's favorite son? Oh, folks, it wasn't what. It, it's who. Jesus came to seek the seeker. Jesus came to love the unlovable. Jesus came to restore us to God. What would, ha- what would happen, folks, in our society if our lives consistently pointed everybody to Jesus? I'm just curious, curious to know, because I think it would change the world. Do you know him as your Savior? Think that one through carefully. Don't let this opportunity slip through your fingers. It may be your one and only. While we stand and while we sing. 
Do you have your own questions about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible? Email info at socc.org or call 812-334-0206.